I'll be reading from 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 1. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him in horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, he was drinking with the kings in the booths, and he said to his men, Take your positions, and they took their position against the city. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Andrew Jones. I'm the campus pastor here at the Leewood Campus of Christ Community, and I was thinking this week, you know, it's hot, it's summer, so it's time to go see movies. Hopefully you've done some of that. I have two preschool kids, so I don't see movies anymore, um, but I'm, I want to live vicariously through. Has anyone seen Dunkirk yet? Yeah, a lot of you. Thanks. Um, I heard it was really good. It was the number one movie in America last week. I'm not sure uh, about this weekend, but my hunch is it's up there. And uh, for those of you who maybe don't know the story, haven't seen it yet, this is, this is based on a true story um, in World War II of 400,000 troops uh, British, French, and Belgian, but mo- mostly British, trapped on the French coastline uh, by the German army and with no plan for escape. Had no idea how they were going to... So, so basically, the, the German tank divisions were surrounding them by land while the German air force uh, pummeled them for eight days from the air. And uh, it's historical, so you might already know the story, but I'm not going to ruin it for you, so I'm not going to tell you how it ends, but it's a really amazing story. Uh, there are a lot of reasons to go see a movie like this. Um, Christopher Nolan is the director. He's one of my favorites. He's a really good storyteller. I've heard the acting is, is superb, is amazing. And just, you know, just being a history, but I mean, it's an amazing story from history. But, but I, I was struck by uh, one writer's take on why this movie is so powerful, why this story is so powerful. And uh, it's a guy named James K.A. Smith. He's a theologian. Uh, and I follow him on Twitter because theologians are on Twitter now. Isn't that amazing? It's crazy, right? 2017, what a time to be alive. But 
I follow him on Twitter, Here's, and he went and saw the movie, and here's what he said. He said, I have no interest in the cult of war, but movies like Dunkirk occasion profound doubts about my own lack of courage. It's the ubiquitous ordinariness of these soldiers that gets me every time. Carpet salesmen and pipe fitters who answer a horrific call. Would I? Is there courage and fortitude and sacrifice deep down in this leisured, coddled soul? Could my comrades count on me? And it, so I, was, I read that and it made me remember, realize that something about battle and war that causes this kind of self-reflection. And I've, I've talked to servicemen and women and they, they say the same thing. Battle forces things out of you that you didn't know were there. They reveal who you really are. And our story this morning in First, First Kings chapter 20, I, I, even just hearing it read, I know it's like a really confusing story. Uh, so we're going to get to that. It's a story, but it's, it's fundamental. It is a story about battle. The story, this, this is not in the Bible just to tell history, though it is doing that. It's a story about battle and what it reveals in people, in characters in the story. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. It's going to teach us, right, battle, it forces us to see what we're willing to sacrifice for, what we're willing to fight for, what we're willing ultimately to die for. So I want us to see that in this story. If you brought your Bible, uh, turn to 1 Kings chapter 20. Feel free to use your table of contents. It's a hard book to find sometimes. Chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 1. So, uh, we've been in this series with us now for several weeks, if you've been with us over the summer. Uh, you shouldn't be surprised we're still there. And, and, and really, for the most part, our focus has been on the character Elijah, the prophet of God. We've talked a lot about Elijah. Elijah started a drought uh, and then uh, confronted a king and then ran away and then raised a widow's son from the dead. You remember that? Then he went back to his hometown. He ended the drought. He defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Uh, then he ran away again. And last week, Pastor Don talked about uh, his experience in the cave, and we kind of left him there last week. And we aren't through with Elijah yet. He's going to come back in the story, but he's nowhere to be found in this chapter. So this chapter begins with a guy named Ben-Hadad in verse 1, and he's the king of Syria. And I want to give you, I want to show you a quick map just so you know the geography and the geopolitics of, the, of this story. So uh, if you look Right there in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, kind of over to the side, you see Israel and Judah. That's the divided kingdom of God's people. Um, it, or our focus is on Israel. Uh, that's where uh, Elijah is. And just north of Israel, you'll see is the kingdom of Syria. And that's where Ben-Hadad is from. And if you look at that big blob of green at the top, that is the empire of Assyria, the Assyrian empire. And they are kind of the superpower of the north. Egypt is still kind of the superpower of the south. You'll see it down there. And God's people are sandwiched in between the two. And uh, Ben-Hadad is a smart guy, and he's in Syria, and he knows, well, I'm not going to go start a fight north of me, because he wants nothing to do with the Assyrian Empire. <laughs> so he says, I'm going to go south and fight there. So he comes down south to Israel, to the capital of Samaria, which, dun-dun-dun, is the hometown of our friend King Ahab. You've, we've been talking a lot about him through the series. And, and Ben-Hadad, he brings a whole posse of 32 kings with him. These are probably like um, tribal leaders with their own militias. That they're all banning together uh, under Ben-Hadad. And in verse 1, it says that they surround Samaria to besiege it, to start a war. So they kind of set up camp around the city. It was a, it was a very common tactic in the ancient world. And Ben-Hadad, as was customary, he sends messengers to Ahab 
now that he's surrounded him, and he says, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. It's a really weird thing to say, but let me tell you, you, uh, you met Ben-Hadad. You did. You don't know it, but you did. He was the guy in high school who told you, meet me after school tomorrow at the bike racks. I'm going to punch you in the face. I'm going to take your money, and I'm going to search through your locker, and I'm going to date your sister. You met that guy. <laughs> He's that guy. That's who he is. He's a bully. And Ahab, here's how Ahab responds. He says, um, sounds good. No need to hit me. Here's my keys, my money, and my sister's phone number. So, so look, at, look at verse 4. As you say, my lord, O king, I'm yours and all that I have. Ahab is, is no hero, no hero. Um, he is not courageous, at least, you know, it doesn't appear to be. He's not wise, and we'll get to that in a minute. But he is a politician. There, there is actually a strategy to what he's doing in responding this way. He knows his back's against the wall. He's not prepared for this battle. His army's not prepared. Uh, he's, it appears he's been taken by surprise. So he wants nothing to do with this fight. And he is hoping that what Ben-Hadad really wants from Israel is to become what's called his vassal state, like his sidekick country. Basically, he's hoping uh, that uh, by appeasing Ben-Hadad, by saying, sure, you can, you can have whatever you want, that Israel will remain its own kingdom, that Ben-Hadad will not invade, but they'll have to pay some kind of financial tribute to him moving forward uh, and give him access to their markets, a special access, give him access to their trade routes. They were on a, a really critical trade route in the ancient world and stuff like that. So, so Ahab, when Ahab says, yes, all that I have is yours, he's trying to get Ben-Hadad to leave the city alone and leave him in charge. That's what he's hoping happens here. But Ben-Hadad is not satisfied. This is why you, uh, you don't give a mouse a cookie, right? He senses that Ahab's will is weak. And so he pushes further. So, he, so Ben-Hadad sends messengers back and says, actually, all that stuff that I kind of hypothetically asked for, you know, your best stuff, your family, I actually want all that. So I'm going to send my servants in tomorrow to go around your palace and take whatever they want. Does that sound good, Ahab? Now, when Ahab hears that, when he hears this guy's actually going to touch his stuff, Okay, suddenly he's, he's a courageous person. He finds his courage. He pulls the elder. He find, now he decides, I'll consult with the elders of the city. He pulls them together in verse 7. And he says, okay, here's what Ben-Hadad is saying. And they tell him, you cannot let him in here. Cannot do that. Tell him yes to offer number one and no to offer number two. So Ahab, or Ahab replies and says, listen, Ben-Hadad, we will be your sidekick. No problem. But we can't let you in here. We can't do that. Now, so Ben-Hadad, he tries one more threat. He, sends it, he says, it's in verse 10, the gods do so to me and more also if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. He's saying, Ahab, if you do not back down, I'm going to promise all my soldiers a handful of your city by the time we're through with you. But Ahab, he has his own trash-talking game. He, he says, you shouldn't talk to me like someone who's ready to take off his armor because you have yet to put it on. In other words, don't count your chickens before they have. We haven't even started fighting yet, and you're acting like you're going to win. Now, when that message gets back to Ben-Hadad in verse 20, uh, the text says that he has already six natty lights in the bag. He's already been drinking the whole day. Um, he, and his, he and his buddies are in a tent in, in the middle of the day drinking. 
And so he's, he's, uh, he's toasted. And a- if you, adding alcohol to bullies is a really, really bad idea. So he, um, he staggers up in my mind's eye and he says, okay, prepare for battle. We're going to fight this guy now. Now, uh, if you're listening to this story so far and you feel like, okay, there's something missing here. Uh, there's, there's, you know, we've been telling, it's like we're a couple verses in, but there's something, you're right, there is something missing. Do you know what it is? God. God, we are 12 verses in the Bible through. We went through three negotiations for the very life of Israel. Okay, we went from peace and tranquility and happiness to war and doom and death without one reference to God. And Ahab has consulted with himself, with his messengers, with the elders of the city, but he has not once, he has not once asked for God's direction, not one time. He has talked to anyone and everyone but God himself. And, and if you've, a good king, and if, if you've read the Old Testament, you know there aren't many of these, but a good king, the first thing they would do is say, okay, Syria is on our doorstep. We're under siege. Go get me a prophet to tell me what God wants us to do. What is our plan? of That's the first thing they would do. That's what a good king would do. Ahab is not willing to fight for his country or his God. And, and even uh, Ben-Hadad, who is a drunk idiot, mentions his gods. He actually, he says, may the gods do the same to me if I don't lay waste to you and your city. Ahab doesn't even mention God at all, not one time. And uh, you remember the story of David and Goliath, right? He's a good king. Before he's a king, he fights Goliath. Even if you don't know, you're not super familiar with the Bible, you probably know that story. Uh, do you know why David fights Goliath? It's not because he thinks he's bigger, stronger, faster. He is not bigger, stronger, faster than Goliath. The opposite, actually. He does it because he knows God will fight my battle with me. He knows that to, to, to attack Israel, to attack God's people, is to attack God himself, his reputation and his name and his power. And he says, you are not allowed, David said, you're not allowed to do that, Goliath, without consequence. That's a good king. Ahab is ready to give Israel away. God's prized possession that he's been working for for thousands of years, this kingdom, he says, sure, ben take it, but don't touch my stuff. <laughs> this, this battle, this, this incident, it says so much about Ahab, and we'll continue to say more. He is a mess. He's been a mess from the beginning. He's still a mess in this story, which makes what comes next in the story so surprising. Look at verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you will know that I am the Lord. God is basically saying, Ahab, if you will not come to me, I will come to you. And listen, Ahab does not deserve this help. He does not deserve any help. With every decision he has made since he became king in Israel, he has invited just this kind of calamity upon himself over and over and over again. But God still intervenes. He says, I want you, Ahab, to know that I am the Lord. Know me. So God, through, the, through this prophet, he gives Ahab a strategy. God says, first send out the servants of the governors of the district. 
as its own fighting unit, the servants of the governor of the district. Now, if you're, if you're like me, you read that and you're like, is, he, is that the Downton Abbey servants? Like, what is a servant of the governor of the district? It's, a, it's an elite uh, fighting unit, probably. We don't know for sure. Uh, but these were probably uh, like special forces in Israel, but they were on security duty normally for leaders in the country. God says, get all of them together, send them out first, then send your main force of 7,000. And he says, Ahab, you start the fight and you start it today. You strike first. So Ahab, he gets everyone ready. He sends out the, the elite unit first and it's, it's about noon. It's the middle of the day. And, and you know, it would be unusual, especially then, uh, to send out a surprise attack in the middle of the day. Syria, no doubt, has advanced scouts in front of their army to see if someone's coming. Uh, the middle of the day is, has the highest visibility. You can see them coming from further away. So generally, this was not a good time to attack. And so God is basically telling Ahab to double bluff. God is saying, the worst uh, strategic time to attack is the best strategic time to attack because no one will see it coming. So Ahab goes out at noon and it works. Because for Ben-Hadad, it's, no, it's noon, but for him it's five o'clock somewhere. He, <laughs> look, at the, look back at verse 16. He, he, he and his friends are already totally drunk by the middle of the day. Again, and I love this. I love that this detail is in here. So he's so confused. So his scouts come back and say, there are people coming at us right now. And Ben-Hadad is so confused by that, he gives this order in verse 18. He says, if they're coming for peace, take them alive. If they're coming for war, take them alive. <laughs> so the soldiers are like, that's great, thanks. Um, Israel, on the other hand, does not make this mistake. They're not confused. It says they strike down their man, each one, and soon the Syrian army is retreating. But Ben-Hadad escapes. He gets away. And before Ahab can celebrate this, this victory, this prophet comes back to him, this prophet of God, and says, he will be back next year even stronger, so get ready now. So God again, you know, Ahab has not said thank you. He again intervenes to help Ahab because God knows, and we get a little picture, in, a window into this, God knows that back in Ben-Hadad's uh, Pentagon, his intelligence community, it's verse 23, they're busy debriefing the loss, and they're thinking, what, what went wrong? Why did we lose? And I have to imagine someone in that meeting said, it might have been because you were drunk. <laughs> and the guy, no, that's, can't, that's not it, no. It's, it's because, and they come up with, uh, you fought Israel in the hill country, where, where Yahweh is strongest. So next time, draw them out to the low country, draw them out to the plains and the valleys, and then they'll lose. That's where our gods are strong. And we talk, we've talked about this several times about how in the ancient Near East, this, at this time, a common part of the worldview is that gods kind of had a home base where they were at their best. And sometimes it was, you know, a political boundary. Sometimes it was a geographical boundary. Lots of different ways to, to slice that. But God has shown again and again and again in this series that he has, he has no bounds. And that's really, we talked a lot about that in the story of the widow's son, where he's in Baal's territory and he's stronger than Baal. So God proves this, he proves this is bad theology over and over and over again. So the following year, Syria again comes out against Ahab and they have superior numbers, they have superior technology, and again, they are, they are routed, they're defeated. And the story, you know, the, the story goes that they encamp, they encamp kind of opposite each other for seven days in the most intense staring contest is all I can picture. 
<clears throat> and then on the seventh day, they actually engage. Uh, and Israel strikes down 100,000 soldiers in one day. And God again rescues Ahab and Israel. Now, that's, that's not the end of our story, but stop there for a second. So, two battles. What, what is worth reflecting on here? What? And here when, you, when you don't read a book straight through, when you kind of break it up like in a sermon series on Sundays once a week, it's really easy to miss the scandal of this moment. Now, I have to remind you, because we haven't talked about everything he's done in a while, Ahab is an absolutely corrupt and evil person. He's He's not just a bad king, he's not just an incompetent king, he's an evil king. He's encouraged the murder of innocent people, including prophets of God, but surely not limited to prophets of God. He has encouraged the pagan worship of violent gods who were created by a violent people. He has encouraged all kinds of sexual abuse and sin in the worship of these gods throughout the land. And he has, he has encouraged, is at least encouraged, if not actually practiced, child sacrifice in the land of Israel. All those things. Those are just the things we know about. Ahab is about as far from God as you can possibly get. And yet... God is pursuing him anyway in this story. You cannot miss it. God is still saying to Ahab, I want you to know that I am God. How many chances does he get? Sometimes, maybe you've felt this way or you've heard someone say this, we can approach uh, in particular the Old Testament and say like, God is mean here. I'm going to turn to Jesus in the New Testament because he's a lot nicer. You ever done that before? Someone said that? You don't have to admit it to me. I understand. But there's there's a tendency for us to read these kinds of stories, this this very story, and say, God, you know, God is this kind of angry, violent, impatient person. And and I'll admit there are parts of the Old Testament that are very confusing. There's a huge cultural gap between then and now. But Ahab's story, I want you to see, proves the opposite. Don't miss the scandal of this moment. If anything, the most pointed thing you can say about God from this story is it's not that he is too judgmental, but that he is too merciful. He's waiting too long. And I don't normally do this, but there's one commentator who, who put this so well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you. He's Peter Lightheart. He, he says, the impression we get from First and Second Kings, remember this is all one book, First and Second Kings. It's all one story. Is not that God is a stingy disciplinarian with an anger problem. If anything, the God of First and Second Kings is irresponsibly indulgent toward his people. A God who does not seem to realize that he cannot run the world without a dose of law and order. By the time Judah is sent into Babylonian exile at the end of the, the story, we are not saying as readers, my, what a harsh God. If we read attentively, we're saying it's about time. What took so long? The offense of the theology proper of First and Second Kings is not that God is angry with the innocent. The offense is the offense of God's mercy. The offense of Yahweh's unearthly patience with the irascible and unresponsive. God's mercy to people like Ahab. Let me put it a different way. Okay, if you and I were in charge of Ahab, if we were his boss, supervisor, whatever, we would have gotten rid of him by now. There's no way he would still be a free man. We would have locked him up and thrown away the key and never looked back. But not with God. God gives him mercy upon mercy, chance upon chance. So, so what does this reveal about? What does this battle reveal about God? 
I think you summarize it this way. You can never exhaust God's grace. You can never exhaust his grace. After everything Ahab's done and will continue to do, he has not yet exhausted God's grace. God is still chasing after him. Now there's a sense in which when you read the story, there's the, there's the presenting battle, right? It's between Israel and Syria, but there's another battle in this story. And it actually is the point of the story. For, for God to deal with the Syrian army is not hard for him. There's not a lot of drama about that. I'm not saying that for, for uh, God that war is a light thing. It's not. But, but for him to defeat the Syrian army, that, that's not hard for him. The drama is somewhere, the battle is somewhere else. The battle is, is for Ahab's heart. He is working so hard to woo Ahab to himself. He is bending over backwards in his mercy and patience with this guy. And when Ahab shows just the slightest obedience to him, Ahab, just, just send the elite units out first. Just do that. The slightest obedience, God blesses him immensely, disproportionate in the hopes that Ahab will turn back. Okay, that's the real battle of the story. And I, and I wish that we could end there. I wish that were the end of the story, but it's not. It's not the end of Ahab's story. God's grace is not the only thing that's revealed here. So yes, Ahab has won the battle, but the story isn't over. Look, look back in verse 30, and we see that Ben-Hadad didn't escape this time, but he's actually trapped by Israel. He's, he's still there. He's stuck. And he hides in a nearby city, in the midst of the battle, and, and then he becomes surrounded by Ahab's army. And he, he knows that he's done. He, he, he says, my last play, his last play, is to feign a kind of repentance to Ahab. Basically, yeah, to, to, to play on his mercy. So he takes off his robes and, he, and his crown and his jewels, and he puts on sackcloth and rope, with a rope, he ties it on, and he sends messengers to Ahab saying, have mercy on me, you've got me, I've lost, you win. And Ahab stops to reflect on how God has, has miraculously intervened to save him twice, and he says, you know what, I'm going to ask God what to do next. Actually, he doesn't do any of that stuff, he doesn't, not one thing. <laughs> Here's what Ahab thinks, he thinks, now I can be the big man. This guy was going to push me around, now I can push him around. I can make him my vassal state. And it'll make my resume as king even, even better. So you, so you see in verse 34, they make a covenant together. He and Ben-Hadad, Ahab and Ben-Hadad. They make a treaty, a friendship together. And Ahab lets him go. And after everything God has done for him, Ahab still gives no thought to God. He does not ask for God's input, for his direction, he is st he's still fighting for himself. And if you have a bad feeling about Ahab's trajectory in life, you should. And God uses prophets in the rest of the story to make the point to Ahab. And, and, and you thought, if you thought the first half of the story was weird, I'm going to be honest with you, this is, the, this is actually the weird part, okay? So bear with me. Right after Ahab lets Ben-Hadad go, there, a prophet of God kind of bizarrely asks another prophet to slap him right? The Bible's confusing, but it's never boring. If you keep reading, it, it gets interesting again. Um, so, he, so he asked to get slapped by another, he asked another prophet to slap him, and the guy refuses. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. And then that guy gets eaten by a lion. 
Just wait. So here's the takeaway. If your pastor asks you to slap him, you do it. No, I don't. Hold, okay, hold that thought. Just wait. So then the prophet asks another person to hit him. And that guy, I don't know if he saw the other guy get eaten by a lion, but he says, yes, I will slap you. <laughs> and so he does. He hits him really hard. He actually wounds the guy. And then that prophet who was hit, he disguises himself as a soldier from the battle that just happened. And he goes to a road where he knows Ahab will pass by. And, and, and when he does pass by, the prophet kind of hails him down and tells him this totally made up story in verse 39. He says, I'm a soldier. I was supposed to guard someone with my life. I was given a prisoner and I was supposed to guard them with my life. And if I lost him, I was going to die in his place. I mean, it was that serious that I guard this guy. But I got busy, I got distracted, and I lost him. What should I do? And Ahab, he hears the story, and he says, well, you've said it. Your life for his. That's the judgment. You, you failed. You blew it. And the prophet, when he, when he hears Ahab say those words, he takes off his disguise in this really dramatic way. And suddenly Ahab recognizes who, that he's a prophet. He's one of the prophets. And he basically says, you are the one who let Ben-Hadad go. You, everything I just said, you did. And now you have said it. Your life for his. And uh, by the way, this is the point of the lion as well. So that, that when God asks you to strike someone, you do it. Ahab didn't ask God what he should do with Ben-Hadad. And the, the other prophet ignored that he was supposed to slap this prophet. So I know it's really weird, but this is actually, this is a common uh, part of the Old Testament story is these enacted out prophecies. You'll actually see this several ways. Now, listen, we may question, kind of after hearing that, why God would want to kill Ben-Hadad. That might be what you're wrestling with. But God knows just a few chapters later, Syria is going to come right back. They're not going to honor this covenant. And they're going to come right back, and they're going to do more harm against God's people than they've done here. This, this was to protect Israel. God knew that this country was not to be trusted. And you, have, you also have to get at, you know, we have a tendency to look at the Old Testament like, uh, like a liberal democracy. It, it was not. Right? We have a judicial branch to handle the justice part of our problems. Um, in a monarchy, that's the king's job. The king defends justice. And God says, I, you, you need to execute this evil person. That's my prerogative, says God, through you. God's trying to protect Israel. Ahab is only thinking about his legacy, his power. That's all he cares about. So Ahab, he, he, he goes home. He's caught by his own judgment, his own word. He goes home angry and resentful, and he goes home depressed and uh, frustrated and confused. But you know what, he, you know what he's not? And he's never? <laughs> Sorry. Never. He never repents. He never says, you know what, God? You're right. I screwed up. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. And even, even Ben-Hadad had the sense to know that he was beaten. Right? Ahab proves this point. Let me, let me back up. Ahab proves this point. You, you cannot exhaust God's grace, but you can reject it. This is Ahab's story. And like I was saying, even Ben-Hadad had the common sense to know that he was beaten. He's surrounded by Ahab, and he knows all I can do is appeal to mercy. That's all I can do. I have no other play. Ahab 
in his whole reign has been surrounded by God's prophets and who are hounding him at every turn. But he would rather die than ask for God's grace. He's more willing to be subjugated to Ben-Hadad. He is more willing to be ruled by a foreign king. He is more willing to make a covenant of friendship and trust with a backstabbing drunk invader than to submit to God. He would rather be ruled by anyone than the merciful God who's running after him. You cannot outrun God's grace, but you can reject it. You can. And that's what Ahab's doing, and he'll continue to do so. That's his story. So, what does that say about us? What does that reveal about us? What is, here's what I think. I, so, God still works this way in our lives today. Let me put it to you this way. In all of our lives, we're going to leave here today, and we're going to go back to war. And you, you probably know what I mean. We're going back to war. You're going back to work, to family, to problems, to enemies, to fears, to doubts, to sickness, to death, to loss, to pain. You are going back to battle today. That's what life kind of is. And we do the same things that Ahab does. We, we make covenants with things that are actually destroying us that do not deserve our, our trust or allegiance. We can get comfortable with our sin, with our disobedience, with our addictions, with our escapes. We have all turned to something other than God in the battle of our lives to save us. Something other than God. We have all made the sacrifice to do anything to win those battles of what's right in front of us. But don't be deceived. This, the battle of your life, the fundamental battle of your life and mine is not the battles of your life. It's not, oh, my marriage, oh, my loneliness, oh, my friendship, my relationship, oh, my job. It's not, it's not in the battles. There's another battle behind the battles. There is a God fighting for you in the midst of all this junk. And he's using everything in your life, every decision you make, every heartache, every victory, even in his confrontation and his punishment he is showing you that he is the Lord and that you cannot outrun his attention, his love, his mercy. And he's fighting tooth and nail for you, just like Ahab. But he, he will not force the issue with you. We can keep living as if we don't want him. We can keep living as if we don't want to know him. And eventually, he will give you what you want, if that's what you want. Because that's what love does. And next week, that's what happens to Ahab. Ahab's story does not end well. So don't be Ahab. Ahab has forgotten that even God's confrontation in your life, even God's disruption of your life is an invitation to forgiveness every time. And the, here's, the saddest part of Ahab's story isn't that he made a treaty with Ben-Hadad. It's not that he made incredibly evil and bad choices. It's not that he sinned and, and was disobedient. That is not the saddest part of Ahab's life. The saddest part of his life is that he is unwilling to turn to God and ask for mercy. That is the worst thing he ever does. It's that he walked away angry from God's work in his life. It's that he did not believe God was fighting for him. 
how different his story would be, how different our stories would be if in our darkest moments we would turn to God and say, God, forgive me, I cannot fight you anymore. I need you. If we would see in in Jesus, God's son, the victory of the battle behind every battle, that's what that is. The victory of sin and death, over sin and death that we could not win, no matter how many treaties we make, but that he's won on our behalf. So we're, we're all fighting him. Lay down your arms. Admit that God's beaten you. He's got you surrounded. Surrender. And then run to his mercy that's been chasing you your whole life. And I promise you there, you will find the rescue that you seek. Let's pray to him now. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and your, and your people gathered here. At... And Father, there's so many battles in this room. There's so much going on that you know about. So God, help us to be a people who can surrender to you in the midst of all that stuff. Say, God, we can't do it. We can't do it. But you can and you did. And help us to always see in Jesus in the midst of any, everything happening in our lives, may we see in him the victory that we so desperately need. God, we love you. We pray this In Jesus' name, amen.